Hello. So I'm going to start this whole presentation with a caveat that uh, I know that the New York Times is a very particular organization and that some of the things that we talk about don't apply more broadly because the, the institution is so unique. But that said, I am going to start by talking about the organization because it's actually out of, um, it's the fact that we started in audio operation at this in this unusual space that I think led to the creation of this form that we're going to talk about, the narrative and the news together. Um, so when I started the Times, uh, it was about a year and three months ago. So we were three months out from the election exactly when I came in, August of 27, 2016. And I actually imagined that we would be largely a narrative operation. The thing that seemed most exciting to me about coming into the Times was the stories that were there, the, the sorts of stories that we as audio journalists and storytellers and producers are constantly searching for. The place was just filled with them, more than we could possibly know what to do with. And it seemed like this was what the Times had to offer, was we could just take our pick of the best of the best stories at the New York Times and spend months bringing them to life as these beautiful, highly produced narrative series. So I came in from this narrative perspective. But then, two men entered my life. Uh, this man to the, to the right, and our new president-elect. And I would say that nothing clarifies a mission like the 2016 election, because essentially overnight, the idea of spending eight months producing a series about Venezuela, or whatever it might be, seemed a little bit absurd to be in this institution and be focused in that way. And so, not only did it feel that there was, that the news had such a significance and so much that needed to be explored, I think it was sort of an existential moment for us in the media where it felt as if it wasn't perhaps being explored as thoroughly as need be. I think Michael could speak to that as a journalist who had been at the Times for 11 years and who covered the campaign. We had this intense feeling that we needed to be covering things differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that the form of news had, in a sense, failed us. And I was a political reporter at the Times covering a lot of the major debates and primary nights and events. And as Lisa and I were beginning to conceive of what the future of an audio project might be after the campaign, we talked about how just news, just the form of traditional news, felt insufficient for the moment. That the stories were just kind of washing over us. They didn't explore things in enough, in enough depth. That, that there's just a, a kind of a problem with just dwelling in the world of, of straight news. And so that's actually, that's, that's where the, the, the idea and the, um, the push for us, the motivation behind the idea of narrative daily news came from. A team of people who came into the Times excited about doing narrative audio, who hadn't been particularly interested in making daily news, suddenly found ourselves in this particular newsroom at this particular moment. And the news felt too big to ignore, and we felt like we needed to do something differently. So that all sounds great, right? Um, we're a team on a mission in a place where there's lots to be done. But the problem is that there are 1,300 journalists in that newsroom, but not one of them is an audio storyteller. So how do you make a daily news show in narrative form, whatever that means, and how do you do it with 1,300 journalists who don't know how to do audio? And the lessons learned in figuring that out, I think sort of somewhat by accident, led to something of a new form that we are calling narrative news. And so what is that? The way that we're talking about it is applying the principles of the narrative form with its pacing, its suspense, character development, the moral stakes, and the exploration of ideas to the news of the day.
Obviously, there's a spectrum of news to narrative, and that depends on the story that, we're, that you're taking on and the news of the day, but always applying in some way the principles of narrative. So to start, I'm just going to play an example that I think is the, sort of the most simplistic version of what that means to apply narrative to a straight-ahead news story, um, and we'll go from there. Hey. Hey. Sorry, so I got the folks here at Kinko's to let me use the phone. How did you do that? I told them I needed to call the office. <laughs> but the problem is I got my laptop on the other side of Kinko's here. I'm afraid some Russian spy is going to take it, so i got to keep my eyes on it. Michael Schmidt called us from the only landline he could find. So, Mike, what did you find? So Comey gets fired on Tuesday. I go in the office 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning. We're just trying to figure out what the heck happened and mm -hmm. start making some calls early. And, you know, folks who knew Comey are up, and they're all spun up, obviously, about what happened. And mm -hmm. saying, we're just trying to figure out what happened here. Why, why did this happen? Do they know why this happened? And they say, this guy says, well, there's this dinner. I said, what do you mean there's this dinner? He said, there's this dinner that Comey had at the White House with Trump. I said, well, what was it? Well, I don't know everything about it. Well, it starts getting a little squirrely. I said, well, you got to tell me more. you got to tell me more. And basically throughout the rest of the day, what I figure out is that seven days after Trump was sworn in, Comey gets summoned to the White House by Trump for dinner, one-on-one -on -one dinner. They start chit-chatting, talking, you know, crowd sizes, election stuff. No one's in the room, no aides, only servers. Trump turns to Comey and says, do I have your loyalty? Mm -hmm. And Comey says, you have my honesty. So this is just a phone call, right? This is just a phone call between Michael and this investigative reporter, Mike Schmidt, who's just gotten this huge scoop. But the front page story at the Times that day, of course, says James Comey asked by President Trump for pledge of loyalty. That is the headline. The inverted pyramid, that's where it starts in the traditional, you know, th this is the definition of a breaking news story. But that is not what you're hearing from Mike Schmidt, right? You have Mike Schmidt on the phone and we have characters. We have Mike Schmidt is, uh, immediately establishes himself as a character on the phone. <laughs> um, he's got some guy at Kinko's is this sort of unseen character in the room who's, who's allowed him to use the phone. We've got two men in a room together. There's a wait staff. There's a sense of mystery. There's a sense of tension. And it's, it's just a phone call. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is like basically how do you establish the rules of narrative into news in a way that I think what we, what we found is an unscripted form of narrative. We've stumbled on that by accident, essentially, by being in this place where we're not going to script with, with reporters. We don't have reporters who can script. And so we have to do a ton of upfront thinking and planning to get a narrative out of something that at the end of the day is unscripted and that you can turn around in a day because at the, it's, a, it's a daily news show. So even if we did have the capacity in these reporters to do scripted narrative, there's just no way to get that done um, with the ambition of narrative in one day. And so unscripted narrative is what we're calling this thing we've stumbled on. And so how do you get something like that out of Mike Schmidt? And then that goes all the way on the spectrum of news to narrative to how do you essentially turn around something that resembles a documentary in a day or two? Um, 
And so uh, the, 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 the conversation between Michael and somebody else is essentially like the building block of the show, I would say. That's the spine, the DNA. Every single show has a conversation at its heart, and the ambition of that can vary from a phone call with a reporter to something that, that, that sounds more like what we're used to as, as documentary form, but ultimately it's, it's figuring out how to get what you need out of a conversation like that that, that leads to these unscripted narratives. And so we're going to just walk through a couple examples of a couple days in the in news over the last few months since the show started and talk about what was going on in the news, what was going on in the world, and why did we do things the way we did on those particular days. And as I said, we don't have the luxury of figuring out the story. Um, we don't have the time. Uh, as you do in a scripted narrative to say, okay, I think I know what I'm after. I'm going to go out in the field. I'm going to get my tape, and then I'm going to come back and figure out what my story is, and then I'm going to write it. So that upfront work, the thinking that goes into what you're going to get out of the conversation before you go into the conversation is ultimately the most important part of the process for us, which I think is, is, is different from what I'm used to, and I imagine what, what most of us are used to, is that the conversation ahead of the conversation with the guest or, or whoever it is that's going to be on the show is essential. And so our team comes together around, we go to the 9.30 news meeting and then we get together around 10 a.m. every morning and we'll often spend two hours in a room just talking and machinating over the news of the day and trying to make sense of what are the questions that we have about what's going on? What are the ideas that we're thinking about? What are the stories that could be told? What could, wh where is the narrative in all of this? And if we can't find anything that resembles question, idea, or story, we basically, we're, we're not going to touch it in the form of narrative. That's the headlines at the end of the show when you hear those. That's, that's sort of the stuff that, here's, all you really need to know is what happened. Mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not the space of narrative. So we're looking for where are the questions, where are the ideas, where are the stories? And it's those conversations in the room that often lead to that. And what we're really kind of driving at is what is your actual human interest in this moment? What are you wondering about? What do you think you kind of understand, but you don't really fully understand it? I think a lot of us in news, um, reporters and editors, in addition to readers, think we know a lot when we, that there's so much assumed knowledge in a news story where it's, it's the latest evolution of a thing, it's the latest iteration of the story, and that assumes that you know everything that came before it. But I think so often we don't really understand that context. And so it's also about being really honest about what do you actually not understand here? What are the, who in this, you know, which of these players do you actually not know who that person is that we're talking about? And without knowing who that is, how can you possibly understand what this all means? Um, what is the history of this country, of this story, of this what it, whatever it might be that you would need to know in order to understand the larger, the, the latest, uh, the latest development in this story? And so that's what we're pushing at when we're in these conversations together. And so this story, of course, in early October, there was a mass shooting in Las Vegas that killed 58 people. And we're in the room the morning after the shooting and we're talking, and I think as a team of people who did not come in to do daily news, who did not think we were coming in to do daily news, these are the sorts of stories that no one's all that excited about. Because what else is there to say when something like this happens? You have to talk about it. Of course, it's a big deal, it's, it's horrible, but it's hard to say anything new when these sorts of Things happen beyond the details of the, the particularities of that particular incident. And so that ended up being the thing that we were grappling with. Um, that ended up being what started to feel meaningful to us. And that was the question that we arrived at is, 
Why is there always talk about gun control after shootings, but nothing ever changes? Why are we having the same conversation over and over and over again? Okay, so that's a question, but we, we certainly don't have the answer to that, right? But we know that that's what we're interested in. So that's where we're starting. We're following our genuine interest and frustrations in the room. And a reminder is, you know, that by the time we arrive at that question, it's probably 11.30 a.m. and we have to turn around a show tomorrow. That's a pretty big question to ask in a daily show. So then we look in the archives and we figure out who we have in our universe at the New York Times who might be able to help us answer that question. And to expand that out, you know, this is where we landed is Robert Draper, and, that, and that's, a, that's a, a writer for the magazine, but the, the, these kinds of people are out in the world. Yes, it helps that they work at the institution that we work at, but certainly um, these sorts of conversations can be had, um, can be found beyond, beyond the walls of the institution or within our institution, but from the outside, obviously, coming in. Um, so, so we have this idea that we have this question, and we have this idea that Robert Draper, who's written this story four years ago, probably after another horrific mass shooting, um, may have an answer in the form of the NRA. So he's written this story called Inside the Power of the NRA. And we're thinking, it seems like what we're talking about here is some effort on the part of the NRA after these shootings that sort of ensures that nothing changes, even though there's all this talk of gun control. So what we do next is we get on the phone with Robert Draper, because you can read the story, but it's a lot different than having a conversation with a person who has a bunch of knowledge in their head and who knows what's actually interested. Basically, we present to him what we're interested in. We say, here's the question we're grappling with, and we suspect you know more than we do about what the answer might be. And, and what he tells us is far different than what he put in his story. And so it's about tapping into people's knowledge and, um, and into their sensibilities, but, but coming at it with, with real intention that doesn't necessarily resemble you know, something that they've written about in the past. And so we're having this conversation with him, and he says, oh yeah, the NRA has a playbook. Every single time there's a shooting, they kick into action with a in a very clear way. And so he, I'm gonna get a little out of order and play what, this is essentially what he told us on the phone, which ends up showing up in the show. And this clip starts right after the Columbine shooting. Students still working out with their weight belts on, but uh, see a lot of tears. Perhaps now America would wake up to the dimensions of this challenge and we could prevent anything like this from happening again. The first thing they do is a seemingly nothing, which is to remain silent. Our words and our behavior will be scrutinized more than ever this morning. Those who are hostile towards us will lie in wait to seize on a soundbite out of context, ever searching for an embarrassing moment to ridicule us. Knowing that any statement is uh, probably not going to do any good, could, in fact, do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. What they will be doing instead during that period is checking to see what the political headwinds are, hearing whatever feedback they may be getting from, say, Republican leaders. If they begin to say to them, for example, this is going to be tough for us to just stay silent on, we may actually have to consider some legislation. Then the NRA begins to go into action, but it does so quietly at first. Its first step is to mount a membership drive, to send out newsletters saying your Second Amendment rights are under attack yet again by a disingenuous Congress that wants to take away your firearms. Never fight if you can avoid it. But when you must fight, don't lose. 
And when nothing less than freedom is at stake, we fight. So he goes on and on like this, and he, he you know, it, it, it leads to this realization, essentially, that there's all this pressure that gets, that gets put on congressmen and women, and they're just not willing to, to deal with that pressure, and they back down immediately. Whatever calls for gun control, um, they, you, you've heard, they sort of quietly, you know, fade away, and there we are again until the next mass shooting, next round, and so we're, we're, we're writing down our notes from our conversation with Robert, and we're, this is the, the actual story outline from the conversation on the phone with him, and you'll see that that playbook comes, we're trying to figure out the structure of our show. So we, we get off our conversation with Robert on the phone, and we don't put the playbook at the top, right? That's, that's the thing that becomes really interesting to us and starts to answer the question, but that is, that is we're gonna go on a journey before we get there. And so what else do you need to know in order to understand the power of that? Well, you need to know that the NRA started as a hunting club, that it was, that it was in the 60s that it turns into a lobbying group actually in response to um, initial gun control legislation that comes out of this wave of civil unrest, the protests in the 60s, some high-profile assassinations, there's a gun control act that uh, Johnson puts into place, and in response to that, the NRA basically turns itself from a hunting club into a lobbying group, power builds, and then we come to these mass shootings, and that's when the playbook kicks into action. And so it's 12, 12 or so minutes into the show that we're going to actually get to the playbook, the, the answer to the question that we actually started out with. And then the thing that really blows our mind is where Robert goes next, which is We've learned this, this, we've learned this fact about the playbook. We've learned of its existence. And then Michael has the natural next question. So to go back to the 1960s and bring this mm -hmm. full circle, an organization that became politicized in the first place in response to the assassinations of these giant figures like Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy solidified power in response to these modern mass shootings. Yes, the NRA as we know it today really came into being as a direct result of violence in America and legislators' attempts hmm. to do something about that violence. Before then, the NRA was a quiet, not-so-large organization mainly devoted to hunting. The NRA as we know it today is an NRA that was born out of the violence, gun violence in America. Thank you, Robert. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Michael. So the big idea that comes out of that conversation with Robert <laughs> is that mass shootings actually make the NRA stronger. And that's not, a, that's not something we knew going into that conversation with Robert. We knew what we wanted to find out. We knew, we knew the question we had. And Robert provided not just something of an answer, but a, a completely unexpected new idea for us and an answer that felt ultimately very satisfying to the question of, you know, why is there this sense that things are going to change and then they don't? And Robert had a, had a real answer to that question. And so that is, it was ultimately ended up being the segment one of, um, of, of the show the following day. Um, it feels like a very, it felt like a very true, um, true realization of, of the real questions we have on, on a day like that. And, and then we were able to sort of deliver in the form of this answer. And that is something that we turned around in a day. 
So ultimately, when we're going back to the conversation with Mike Schmidt and that phone call, that is a, a more simplistic version of this. But what we, what we did in that conversation with Robert was a ton of work in a short amount of time by having that phone call with him of figuring out what's the story here. And then we go in and we write a set of questions that are going to unfold that in a way that, that, that will resemble a narrative. We're going to start with history. We're going to move through time. We're going to arrive at this playbook. We're going to talk about the response to mass shootings and, how, um, and what we've seen over and over and over again. And then we're going to land on this big idea. But that's, we, we know that's the journey we're going to go on. So we've written a set of questions so that what we get out of Robert is actually exactly what we need. right? So, so when we're done with that conversation with him, we actually have a narrative already, an unscripted narrative. And then it's just a matter of bringing it to life and getting a producer, you know, it's a two, it, that was a two-person operation in a day, that, that making that, sh that segment. And so one producer is cutting the conversation with Robert, um, you know, it's, it's maybe 35-minute mm -hmm. conversation down to a 15-minute conversation. The other person is pulling tape of, you know, historical archive tape of, of the shootings and of, of, um, of, the, of uh, you know, MLK, the MLK assassination, and bringing that to life as the other producers cutting. But but it was you know it's, it was a in in 12 hours that that had gone from an, a question we were asking to a to a segment on the show. Right, and the title of this presentation is the marriage of narrative and news. And I think what the Daily tries to do every day, and I hope it's working, is is ask ourselves how can we tell you a story that is very much grounded in the news, but is not of the news in that incremental sense. I mean, all around us that day, including in the pages of the New York Times, was a, was a pretty traditional unfolding of, of a mass shooting. Who is the shooter? What's his profile? What gun did he use? And we see our mandate as finding the narrative within that news. And I think the answer on this day was, half of the answer was the NRA and Robert Draper telling us the story in such a fulsome way, and I think it's one of the, th the lessons I think Lisa has taught me and made essential to The Daily is that a story like that can't start in the middle. The beginning of that story is the beginning of the National Rifle Association and its evolution. And the end point is the playbook. And getting everybody involved in that whole process to agree that there's a journey and an arc to that story is I think what distinguishes this concept of narrative news. So that was segment one that day, but we had one other question that we were all talking about in that room, and that was, what's it like to be a gun store owner who sells a gun to someone who uses it in a mass shooting? And inside of that question, we were, we were talking about, you know, to, to your point about um, what kind of gun did he use, these kinds of questions that are circulating. We all had this question of like, why does anyone buy a gun like that for anything other than this? When we're talking about these machine guns, like what is we a genuine curiosity that we wanted to pose to somebody who actually knows the answer in a really sophisticated way would be a gun store owner. They're going to be able to directly answer the question that we had, which is, what do you do with that gun other than it's not a hunting rifle, it's not a handgun. What do you do with a machine gun? And so it was a real question we had, and we went looking for a gun store owner. And I won't tell you too much about who we found, because narrative suspense, but, um, but I'm going to show you the Google Doc of the questions that we wrote in advance for this particular gun store owner. And so this too, I think, when we have these conversations with, with real people, we're also looking for what's the narrative in this conversation? What's the, what's the story that we're going to tell and who, 
how do we go on this journey with this person in a way that's, that's a natural human conversation? So the gun store owner is obviously unaware that we have a set of questions for him that are going to unfold in a way that we hope takes the listener on a real journey. But actually, the way that they're being written is, is, is much more closely resembles a natural human conversation than when you get a gun store owner on the phone and say, like, hey, what was it like to uh, sell a gun to somebody who used it in a mass shooting? That's not how we start conversations with anybody. But it is definitely how I would have started the conversation had I not met Lisa Tobin. Um, what? <laughs> So, and, and obviously that's going to get a particular kind of response from, from a person who doesn't, who that's not how people want to be spoken to. And so everybody wins in this equation when you have conversations with, when you, when you set out to have a sort of a narrative conversation with, with a real person, which is that, that you're going to get something far more rich out of somebody if you, if you, if you have a conversation that resembles a natural human conversation. And um, they're going to appreciate that. And I think we've found people really open up in that form. But you're also, for the listener and for the purposes of, of telling an important story, you're going to go on a journey that may have the narrative tensions and twists that, that, we are, that we are looking for. And so we started with this question, can you tell me about your store? And I just want to be clear that this is the first thing you heard. So there's been no introduction. The show, you know, we come back from ad break, and the first thing you hear is this. So we have not told you nearly anything. Hello, and I know why you're calling. Hey, is this John? Yeah. Hey, it's Michael Barbaro from the New York Times. Okay, bye. John, can you tell me about your store? Maybe just describe it to me. You're talking about the gun shop? Yeah. Uh, we already had a number of shops in the area, so I decided I didn't want to sell the same thing they did, which was all hunting equipment. And so I started out by selling tactical equipment, like uh, AR-15s or long-range rifles. I mean, I sold rifles that uh, could shoot a mile. I sold $10,000 rifles. I sold $5,000 guns. I sold the upper end. So right away, he's told us so much. He told us he's a gun store owner. We didn't tell tell anyone that. He, he, he just supplies that information out of the gate. Um, he tells us that he sells the exact kind of weapons that we're interested in, high-end machine guns. Why is anyone buying those? So we have met John Markell, the owner of this store, and he has very quickly established himself as a person who the day after the Las Vegas shooting, you can imagine why you might be hearing from this person, but we don't know where we're going, right? So it's feeling relevant. I'm, I'm, I'm getting the sense that, that I'm hearing from this person for a reason, but I don't know what that reason is yet. So the, the, the conversation continues. If you could sell anything, why is it a gun? Like, why'd you open a gun store? Um, I'm sure that was an interesting answer from John. Um, you know, he, we get him to describe the store. What types of guns do you sell? How many guns do you sell in a year? What's your favorite gun? And then we get to this question that we were actually starting, you know, that, that we came, where, where, our, where our interest came, came from, which is why would anyone buy that type of gun? So... So here's a question that I've been wondering about, knowing that I would be talking to you. I feel like I understand why people buy handguns. And I also understand why people buy hunting rifles to hunt. But I feel like I don't understand as well why people buy these kind of higher powered guns. And it sounds like you carry some of those weapons. Well, I carry a lot of them, but you can't even hunt with but them. But why, why do people buy that sort of gun? Oh, just for fun. 
That's all. Just for what do you? Do you have any idea how much fun it is to take one out at a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four, even five hundred yards, and shoot with that? So we actually all found that very unexpected and interesting. Like the the true answer was because it's fun. And that, that felt like a satisfying answer. That was something that everybody was struggling to understand. What is, what, why are these guns in the world if not to be used for destructive purposes? Because they're really fun to shoot. So that's, and that is from the mouth of a man who knows. So the conversation continues. Um, so when someone buys a gun like that, what do you imagine they're doing with it? Having fun with it. Um, and this is where I think something sort of interesting happens is we say, what's the process of selling a gun like that to someone? But then we turn it and it becomes about Michael. So if I wanted to buy a gun, can I buy that machine gun from you? And I think it's a very small move to say, to, to make that personal, but it does a lot when, with the sort of like building of a human relationship and, and telling a story where there are characters involved is like, let's, let's, let's make this less of a conversation in which this guy feels like he's, he's talking to a journalist and more of a conversation in which two people are just talking. John, what's the process? If, if I walk into a store, me, Michael Barbaroff, yeah. and I want to buy an assault rifle or something like a machine gun, what happens? Well, First thing that happens is we size the person up. You have any idea? You have any idea how much how many sales we've lost just because we refused to sell the gun? Hmm. Something didn't smell right. We get lots of mad people. I mean, I, I, we've seen some really squirrely people. We just felt so. We just didn't feel right selling it, and with nothing other than a feeling to go on. And how often does that happen? So here we've learned that, well, that's the second use of squirrely in the presentation um, by guests. Here we've learned that, that, that a gun store owner actually uses their own judgment in selling guns. That's news to me. And then I just want to be, you know, a lot of this you're seeing that things are unfolding more or less as we hoped they would. The, the script is kind of working. The questions are sort of working. But then inevitably with real people, surprises come. Oh, uh, weekly? Monthly? Hmm. I mean, I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, it's, it, it literally probably cost me $20,000 of what we turned down. But so say, and, say I pass the, the, the kind of John visual okay, test. They're going, they're going to do, do two background checks. One's federal and one's state. Okay, we don't move until we hear them say yes. And does that take some time? Uh, for two-thirds, it doesn't. For a third, it does. So it sounds like I could walk out with an assault rifle on the same day? You can, in 15 minutes, because it's not the weapon. The weapon's a tool, no different than an axe. I mean, it's how you use it. I, mean, I sold a gun. I, I mean, I wish I hadn't. The woman committed suicide, and she did it in our parking lot because she said she didn't want her children to find her. I just want to pause, and, and this was such a such a shattering moment in the interview. He's just told us, he's just volunteered to us that he sold a, a gun to a woman who walked out into the parking lot and, and killed herself in the parking lot. And I think one of the discoveries that certainly I've had as a, as a print journalist about this idea of narrative news is that th this, this kind of pacing and unfolding of an interview where there's, a, there's suspense and there's slowness and there's a journey is not only, is not only an incredibly powerful way to discover... Uh, news, it's also just the most respectful possible way to talk to a person. And I think that you see this interview, as you hear this interview, you're hearing us showing him a lot of respect 
for his career and his, his craft, he thinks of it as a craft, his judgment, and no matter what you feel about guns and gun control and a gun store owner, he is deeply human and he feels human. Otherwise, why would he be telling the New York Times about a moment that seems to very much question the, the very thing he does. It was on his mind. He, was, he wasn't feeling like you feel when the first question you get, which is very much what print journalism tradition is, John Markell, hi, I'm Michael Barbaro from the New York Times. Uh, I'm calling you because I want to know what it's like to sell guns that are used in mass shootings. I mean, the whole dynamic changes with this, and it's been very, very eye-opening for me. But as it turns out, he, he knows what it's like to sell a gun to someone in a mass shooting. And that is information that we have deliberately chosen to withhold. And so we're about seven minutes into a conversation with him before Michael asks him, so tell me about the gun that you sold on March 13th, 2007, which is the, the gun that was used in the Virginia Tech shooting. When did you first hear about the, the shooting, the Virginia Tech shooting? Well, it happened on a Monday. Well, you got to understand, I was listening for the whole, from the whole thing, the news from the very beginning, one person was killed in the dorm. Then there's two. Then a long, long gap, or seemed like it was a long gap, and then we hear there's 10, there's 15. It just kept going up and up, and I kept thinking, my God, it's got to stop. Hmm. And I had to deal with the ATF immediately, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. We didn't know it was us until ATF told us it was. And the only reason they knew is because he kept the receipt in his backpack. Hmm. So this is a man who, who experienced the Virginia Tech shooting just like the rest of us, who was horrified by the numbers that are stacking up and then discovers, you know, hours later that that, that, that gun came from his store. But we have, we have taken a long time to get there. And, um, and Michael and... and, and, and John grapple with what that felt like and how he made sense of that for, for several more minutes. Um, Michael then asks him what happened to sales at his shop. And there's another unexpected moment where he says, um, basically, they went through the roof. And this has a really powerful echo back to segment one, where we're hearing basically in reaction to these the, to events like these, there's a there's a there's a solidification around gun culture. There's a there's a support behind it that 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 even like takes the form of people driving from miles away to come to this man's gun store to buy guns from him instead of from the gun store nearby as a sign of solidarity with this man. So this comes as a real surprise. And then finally, we get to the final question, and I would say this is a question where we had. We were not sure what we were looking for. We were just looking for a big, like a, a th an idea from him to go out on a thought. And we said it's been 10 years since the shooting. Obviously, Las Vegas has just has just taken place with every mass shooting that's happened since. What goes through your mind? I want to ask you, John, about about the period since Virginia Tech. Every time there's a mass shooting, and there are mass shootings now many times a year in the in the United States. Let's take the examples of what happened in Orlando or what just happened in Las Vegas. I, I want to understand what goes through your mind. Anytime I, see, I hear about a shooting, same thing goes through yours. There's no difference. And I think that's a, that's a sort of open for interpretation answer. The same mm. thing that goes through your mind, there's no difference. How can that be? You sell guns. Yet the moral ambiguity of that is actually quite lovely, awful, lovely, but but just real. And I think I think when we 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 had this idea that we wanted that came that was also born out of the election that people when we have conversations with people, 
let's let's not use them as props let's use them as people and let's let people figure out um, through the process of hearing their story why you're hearing their story and why 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 that person is talking in this moment and I think this is a good example of that because because um, uh, obviously it, it becomes clear why we chose this particular gun store owner but it's a it's a person first and it, and it ends up being a lot more than that it ends up being yes that's that's an that's a um, particularity of his story, but it ends up being a conversation with a person who it sort of feels like we should be hearing from in this moment, who we should get to know as a person in this moment as we're trying as a culture to make sense of these shootings. And so that ends up being our coverage, um, second day coverage after the Las Vegas shooting is the NRA story um, is segment one and the conversation with the gun store owner is segment two, and that was turned around in a day. So, you know, a conversation like that with John, we probably put as much time into crafting these questions in advance as we did to editing the, the interview afterward, which at the end of the day is a relatively straightforward two-way, right? But because of the way the thought that's been put into the questions up front, it, it, it takes us on a journey. Um, and if you see a daily producer named Ike Sreeskandaraja around here today, he won a Third Coast Award and he'll be giving it tonight. You, you can thank him for finding John Markell because the first nine gun store owners said no to us. <laughs> um, but John said yes. Um, yes, thank you, Ike. Um, okay, so one more story. Um, and this one, you know, on the spectrum of, of narrative to news, um, we've been talking more about news with John Schmidt, I mean Mike Schmidt, um, and, the, and the Comey memos, and, and with um, the, the, the Las Vegas attacks. But we also um, have plenty of stories that, that fall much further along the, um, the spectrum toward narrative. And this, this, um, this is a story that appeared in the Times in print in, in October. And it was a story about an incident that was not super um, high profile because it, had, um, it, was, it happened in Portland, Oregon. And while very, like, you know, while very upsetting, uh, nobody was badly injured in this attack. A, a Marine had swung a chair at a, a waiter in an Iraqi restaurant. And the, the news that had come out of that in the early days had been hate crime, hate crime, hate crime, hate crime. Um, and this reporter, Dave Phillips, had realized, well, it's a slightly more complicated story than that. The man who swung the chair, uh, this Marine had served four tours in Iraq and had been diagnosed with PTSD, had found himself, who knows why, in an Iraqi restaurant that night, and um, this, this, this horrible thing happens. And so the way that the print story unfolded, which was beautifully written, um, is, is right away up top. I mean, it's in the headline. A Marine attacked an Iraqi restaurant. Was it a hate crime or PTSD? That's sort of grappling with, like, what should we call this? But what became interesting to us was that, like, the, the, the nature of this story is that things are more complicated than they seem. The nature of the story is um, the, the first blush look at this story is, is, is really not the story. And so how do you, how do you with, with knowing that to be true, how do you structure a narrative? And what we came up with was this idea that, that the surveillance camera had shown a man who looked like a skinhead, a man with a shaved head and a hoodie on coming into a restaurant and swinging a chair. And so that's what the headlines had, sh had said the next day. Everything, you know, the surveillance videos show and, and, and the, 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 the quick reaction news story was, you know, this looks like, a, like an act, you know, a white nationalist sort of act. And Portland, Oregon had been, had experienced a few of these acts. There was a lot of 
there was a lot of tension in the city, a feeling of, of like we have to come down hard on these sorts of things because why is this happening in our city? And so there was swift movement to come down hard, to call it a hate crime, but the story's more complicated. And so we, that's, that's how we decided to structure this, is let's, let's live in that moment where people think this is one thing for as long as it makes sense. So let's set this up in such a way that the whole thing is from the perspective of the surveillance video and the Iraqi restaurant owner in the early days of this attack. And so here's how we start. Dave, describe for me what we see on the surveillance video from this restaurant, Dar Salaam, on the night of April 25th. It's a busy night at the restaurant, and you can see on the surveillance video that, that a man with a shaved head walks in with a friend and takes a seat in the middle of the restaurant. People around him are all eating, and he doesn't order. He sits there, he looks around at photos of Iraq that are covering the walls. You see the waiter come up and ask again and again if, if they can help him. Mm-hmm. And then after about a half hour, he and his friend get up, and, and the man with the shaved head is, is looking around, trying to leave, maybe a little nervous, his hands jammed in his pockets. And then really without warning, he picks up a chair you can see him slightly test it for weight, and he swings it as hard as he can into the waiter's head. Wow. A customer goes on the attack at an Iraqi restaurant in North Portland. An employee was hit over the head with a chair. The owners of Dar Salaam say two men were in the restaurant for about an hour, at times yelling racial slurs at staff, when one seen on the right picks up a chair and hits a waiter so hard it left the server with a bruised shoulder. You can see the melee. After what happens in the restaurant, right away, Jaith Saheb, the owner of the restaurant, gets a call from his sister saying, you've got to come down, there's been an attack. I get a phone call from my sister and cry and yelling, screaming to me, Jay, somebody attacked us. He rushes down. I left my car, like, running, you know, uh, the doors open. In, in the parking lot? Yeah, I, I was really worried. And then when I get close to the restaurant, I say, like, uh, Tables are broken, uh, glasses everywhere, police everywhere. Wow. And I really, I didn't understand what happened that night. So one thing that's uh, worth noting is, is the, the person who wrote this story, again, this bears no resemblance to the story he wrote, but of course he knows all of this information. And so there's no reason why you can't sort of change the form in which the story is presented if somebody knows that information. They have to be game and they have to be willing to go on that journey with you and sort of agree with the premise that that's an appropriate way to structure the story that they sort of hold the, the keys to and the information about. But, but, but he does. And, he, and it's sort of what, what in audio, what is, the, what is this medium, how does this story want to be told in this medium? How does this story want to be told as a, tr- as a true narrative? And in this case, um, it, w- it, w- it, was, it was quite different than the story that appeared in print. Sometimes, sometimes we, we, we like the structure as is and we more or less play within that, but sometimes we, we, we just completely mess it up because, um, because of this, this sort of pursuit of the narrative inside of it. And so what, what goes on for the next you know, 10 or so minutes is that we, we follow this restaurant owner back to Iraq and he tells the story of having been involved in a um, car bombing that left him I think pretty much in a coma. Bedridden for for a couple of months, he became incredibly depressed. Ultimately, it leads to his leaving Baghdad, coming to Portland, getting married, moving to Portland, and sort of this process by which of healing, by which he opens Dar Salaam, this House of Peace restaurant, 
um, a Rocky restaurant in Portland where that comes to be embraced by the people of Portland. And you come, you have this incredibly powerful sense, I think by the end of the segment, that this, n the, nothing more horrible could have happened to this particular man because we learn what's happened to him. We learn the, over the course of, you know, going on this journey with him back to Iraq and, and, and taking this step back and, and then returning to the restaurant and then to the night of the crime, we learned just how powerfully unsettling that would be for this particular man. And then we get to the end of Act One, we've, we've, we've come back to the moment of the crime after going back to, to Baghdad with this man, and this is where we take the turn. So that's where it gets kind of interesting. The man, you know, he, he's wearing a hoodie, he's muscular, he's got a shaved head. I think a lot of people at the restaurant might have thought that he was some some skinhead, essentially. Uh, in fact, he's a career sergeant major in the United States Marine Corps, uh, a 40-year-old guy named Damian Rodriguez who had done mm -hmm. four deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's what really caught my attention. Here's mm -hmm. this guy with this long history of, of exposure to combat coming into an Iraqi restaurant and attacking the waiter. To what extent was this a hate crime and to what extent was it a wound of war? Hmm. We'll be right back. So this obviously is far more complicated than the other stories we've been talking about and I think it resembles a scripted narrative but once again these are just people telling their stories to Michael and so the story elements of this particular story are you know if you were to say that the the conversation the the, the set of questions that we showed of, of Michael's conversation with John the gun store owner he basically did that four times for this story right there's a set of questions for Michael and the reporter, Dave Phillips. There's a set of questions for Michael and the restaurant owner. There's a set of questions for Michael and the veteran's mother. And there's a set of question for, questions for Michael and the veteran's platoon mate. We'll hear from the mother and the platoon mate in a second. But basically, each one of those, you need, we needed to know in advance, what is it that we need, what journey are we going on with this particular person inside this story, so that when we bring them all together, we can weave together this narrative that is still a series of conversations. And so it, part of the significance of, of um, Dave Phillips is to tie all that together, right? He's the one who's got the whole story. So the way that we, that we did this is that Michael spoke to the three characters in the story before speaking to Dave Phillips so that we then structure a conversation for Dave that knows all of the beats that we're going to hit and we know like here's where we're gonna go with you know this is when we're gonna return to Baghdad so this is what we need to hear from you this is how so it's a lot of actually stage management of, 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 the, of the voice in that case and it's like knowing who you can do that with and who you can't do that with you can't do that with a real person right you're not gonna ask them to perform for you you're not gonna ask them to retake something to sound the way you want those conversations the beauty of those is that if you write the questions you know if you with enough thought put into those questions hopefully you get this mix of the journey you want to go on and also a lot of surprises and, and beauty along the way. And with the, with the reporter, with the voice, you can get a little bit more stage managey and, and, and sort of get closer to asking somebody for the script that you would have written for a story like this, right? To stop and start and, and say like, can I get you to actually say the date? Can I get you to go back and say like on March 17th because I'm gonna need that. And so there are all these ways of upfront getting this material that it sort of feels like a miracle when it all comes together, that, that you've been able to do that in a couple of days. But if you know the story you want to tell and, you, and that's how you set out on the journey, 
it's sort of, it's amazing how much you can accomplish in these conversations. And just a small point, because people I think are curious how we can do something like this with the daily schedule. The answer is um, that we wouldn't do all these in one day. I, I would do one of these interviews a day, probably for three days or so. Each of them might take 90 minutes. Some of them, as I recall, took closer to two hours. And we finish them, and there's a dedicated producer who is focused on this episode and is working with Lisa, an editor, to really make it all come together over a week or so, which is still a pretty remarkable turnaround time for something like this, but I don't want you to think that we turn this around in a day. Right, right. Um, and, and then the, the sort of the extra elements on this, of course, are, are, are newsreel and the use of scoring throughout. So the, the sort of breakdown of a, of, a, of a story like this is several interviews, um, news, newsreel, and, and scoring. And, um, and so then in act two, um, we, we, you see the coming together of all of these conversations, of everything that we've, we've collected, and the sort of reveal of the second half of this story. So after having heard one man's experience in Iraq, we hear the other man's. This is the Marine's mother, who um, on the phone with Michael volunteered to him that she happened to have letters that the, that the Marine had written to her from his time there. And so we ended up with this um, surprise of, of her being able to sort of give his story in his own words through, the, through reading these letters. Yesterday on patrol, we had about 100 kids following us. Well, things are going good. I just wish I could have a beer. Right back, love, Damien. This is about a week before everything happened. And on a spring day, April 6, 2004, Damien Rodriguez takes a squad of about a dozen Marines out on a foot patrol. So we set out from the combat outpost. As we're moving through and leaving, we realize these streets that normally have kids throwing rocks at us were very empty. And this is about 11 a.m., hmm. something like that. They're so that's strange. Yeah, very strange. You always hear veterans, Vietnam vets, people like that say, you know it's going to be bad when it's quiet. Hmm. What he didn't know is that there was this vast coordinated attack by insurgents about to happen citywide. And they round a corner walking down the sidewalk of an urban boulevard and, and fire just erupts from everywhere. They opened up on us in a 360-degree ambush. Windows, rooftops, alleys. I can feel the rounds cracking around me. I can feel in here. I can feel the air. I can feel them. I can see them hitting all around me. I felt and heard a really loud pop and then a very warm feeling all over my mm. face because I was shot in the face, right behind my right ear. It severed the external carotid artery. I should have been dead immediately. It was pouring blood out. Rodriguez takes the guys that he can get together and he, he holes up in a house and sort of tries to take stock. Mm. He's got two Marines already dead in the street and he can't get to the bodies because there's too much fire going on. Remember, he's in charge, but at the same time, there's not a whole lot he can do. Hmm. They're running low on ammo. He's got his hand pressed against the neck of another private who has been shot through the neck. And really all he can do is, is keep shooting. He was cracking jokes with me, just trying to help me stay calm, which I was. And, when, and so, when, what, what kind of joke could anyone, let alone your platoon leader, make at that moment to make you feel better when you're You've been shot in the face and you're bleeding like that. 
um, well, there was a couple of them. One of it was just, hey, you're going to be in Germany in no time hanging out with the nurses. What are you complaining about? You know, hmm. just give me a hard time. And then um, they used to joke with me that I had a big nose. And they said, hey, you just took a little bit off the tip, you know, <laughs> stuff like that off the nose. And so... Over the radio comes a report that, that the other group that was split off by them has just been hit by a grenade. And they've got two guys down. They're still taking fire. He's called for reinforcements, but they can't get there because the, the whole city is, is essentially a repeat of this whole scene. There's fighting going on all over the place. We finally were medevaced out of there, or I was. They showed up in the Humvees, and he looked back at me and said, can you walk? And I gave him a thumbs up. Ran out there. He helped me get in the Humvee. Marines are killed. We've lost some of our friends, our brothers. There wasn't much of us left. Hi, Mom. Well, as you know, we're out of the city and sort of in a safe place. My platoon and I have just been relaxing, eating, and exercising. We've also been going to a lot of post-traumatic stress classes with the chaplain. It's one of those mandatory things. But it's good since my platoon have been through a lot of stuff. Keep up the prayers for us, and we should be home safe and sound. I look forward to seeing you. Love, Damien. So this started right as a news story about this incident in Portland um, involving this Marine in this Iraqi restaurant. And like 17 minutes into the show... We have learned what happened to him through the words of the people who know him, and we've gotten an idea of, this, of, of one of the more traumatic incidents that he experienced there, culminating in his telling his mom, you know, we're going through PTSD treatment. I think that's good. And so we've, we've totally reframed this story, this new story, into a long, expansive um, narrative that, that you know, in two parts tells the story of these two men involved in the words of, 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 of in, in, some, in, in, some, in the case of the restaurant owner, in his own words, in the case of, of the veteran, um, in his mother and his platoon mate's words. And then, and then we've used this reporter um, to stitch it all together. And uh, ultimately, we thought, told a, a, a more nuanced and complex version of the story. Um, and so that's, that's sort of where we landed is what have we learned in all of this somewhat by accident by finding ourselves in this situation at this organization um, with a group of reporters who you know who have no training in scripted narrative and yet who we felt this 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 um, mission inside of this organization at this moment to apply those those lessons of narrative to to the stories that we're telling and it's that by applying some of these principles we're trying to not to explore not just what happened but why and how. Trying to tell a story and to, to importantly to have a complete thought. At a moment like this, it feels especially meaningful to us to apply those principles to the most urgent stories of our time. To to take the lessons of narrative that we've all that we've all honed and apply them to the, to these stories that feel most urgent in this moment. And we can all do it. It boils down to having thoughtful conversations and relentlessly pursuing the ideas, questions, and stories that you genuinely want to understand. Um, we're going to take questions in just a moment, but that's, that's the end of this part of the presentation. And then I think you can go up to the microphone. So we have about 15 minutes if you guys want to ask us any questions at all about the New York Times, about New York Times audio, the daily, narrative, news, anything. 
Process. <clears throat> Process. Sleep. Hi. Hey. Oh, there we go. Hi. I'm curious about how you prep the people that you're going to talk to on the phone. The gun shop owner, for example. He obviously he knew you were calling. He said that right from the start. What do you do? What What does a, a producer do in the pre-interview to let them know what you're looking for? Yeah. So. Uh, with a with a person like that, a, a real person, quote unquote, um, we don't do much. We we don't tell them much. We're looking more for biography and character, just to make sure is this a person who we think has the story. But we would never run through those questions in advance because obviously that's just going to mean that that the, the the spontaneity of that of the of, of the conversation is is going to be somewhat lost if you're having it twice. So a producer might call up and say, "Hey, John, we're looking to talk to a gun store owner. We're just curious, um, you know, how long have you how long have you owned your store? Um, oh yeah, what kind of weapons do you sell? Okay, well, do you mind if we give you a call back in an hour? Um, you know, just to get, like so, really, it's the producer finding out. Do we do we have the story here? But but certainly, we wouldn't have run through those questions. Now, the journalists—that's a whole other kind of preparation when it comes to a Times reporter. And there, we have kind of a, a, a kind of a playbook we use with them. That's along the lines of, you know, understand where, how this is going to unfold. It's going to unfold sequentially. If I'm, I'm asking you a question that grounds you in a period of time, can you stay in that period of time? That's a real challenge because we talk a lot on the daily about inverting the inverted pyramid, right? The traditional journalistic convention of you give it all away at the top and the editors can chop when they get closer to the bottom, whereas a lot of our suspense, a lot of the power of our storytelling is in the back quarter, back half of a, of a, of a narrative piece of audio. So we, we're very diligent in the beginning of an interview of telling the reporter, our colleague, the Dave Phillipses of the world, the Mike Schmitz of the world, this is what we're up to. So please try to, to try to you know work with us on this. And it sometimes means doing retakes and oh no, you just gave away the whole story. Let's try that again. Um, that happens a lot. Uh, sometimes we can run with it, and sometimes we just have to say you know at, like teachers and parents. You know, we do the traditional thing. Someone asked me this uh, earlier this morning. How do, you, how do you deal with reporters? How do you not make them unhappy? You know, the same way all great feedback works. That was so great what you just did. Can you just not do it again? Um, <laughs> Can you go back and do it totally differently? Um, uh, it helps that I've been at the Times for 10 years, and a lot of these people are people I've worked with really closely. So there's a lot of camaraderie. It's not a, an alien being coming in and asking them to do something. Should we do the first one, then we'll come back to the second one? Hey, sorry. Hi. Uh, Julia McAvoy, KQD in San Francisco. I'm curious about uh, editorial decisions of omission in service of the narrative. Uh, it seems like with the story of the gun owner, and perhaps I missed it, but he had said that gun sales go up after a mass shooting. And the last comment you ask him about is, what are you thinking about after a mass shooting? Uh -huh. Obviously, he gives you this nice answer of, I'm just thinking the same thing you are. But as a journalist, it seems like it would have been hard not to ask something about the fact that he's going to see profits go up after that. And you don't go there. And I'm curious about that as a journalist. And then in the story of the Iraqi, uh, the platoon guy going in, he, uh, he goes into an Iraqi restaurant. And as you set up this narrative for us, you just kind of blew by that fact, right? Like, why would he go in there? So maybe you covered it, and maybe you didn't. And if you didn't, I'm kind of curious how you decide, because it's very tempting, right, yeah. to make a nice story that's open-ended and very provocative and panders, or not panders, but caters to a, a broader audience. Yeah. And how do you stick to your real journalism in that process? Yeah, so 
so as in the case of the Iraqi restaurant owner, we did we did address that, and and the answer is that uh, he was drunk with his platoon mate, and you know the the reporter can only speculate about why he went in, but does say sort of like the just that seems like perhaps not the best decision that they made in that moment. So that is that is a it, you know it's he has not supplied the answer for why he went into an Iraqi restaurant, um, but. Certainly, we 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 press at that. Um, in the case of of the gun store owner, I think with with the these conversations that we have with real real people, one of the things that we try to do, and I don't know that we always get it perfectly right, is have faith in the listener that they understand the significance of that. So at this point, we've established in multiple ways throughout this episode that that gun culture is strengthened in, by these shootings. And so at this point, that is poignant, I think, when he makes that comment. And I think it's, it's not, it didn't feel necessary to say to him like, well, wait a minute, because we all already know that and we've already heard that from his mouth. And so I think for the listener, I hope for the listener, and again, I'm not, I'm not sure we always get it right, but I hope for the listener, the, the, that knowledge is enough and it doesn't feel necessary to sort of like make that to change the nature of this conversation with this man where we're trying to let him to let him, to, to really listen and let him talk it doesn't feel necessary in that case to do that i think sometimes it, it absolutely is um and maybe even in this case but it did but it didn't feel that way to us in this case when the show's seven months old i'm still learning when the right moment is for me to push back really hard on a guest and when to be a, a more empathetic listener and i think we're really trying to find that balance. And I would say once in a while, we don't get it right. I hope a lot of the time we do, but we, as Lisa said, we do have a lot of faith in our listeners and we know that you're making judgments throughout the entire interview and that I certainly don't wanna be the scold in my role as the host of this show. I think the, just to go back to where this show was founded after a campaign in which I think a lot of us had made a lot of assumptions and had been kind of breezy and judgmental throughout the whole thing, um, that this show is, about a certain kind of conversation that is, that is listening. And sometimes that means that someone in the audience is gonna say, why aren't you doing this right now? Why aren't you asking that question? And, and sometimes we're gonna get that right and sometimes we're gonna be a slightly off. Hey, uh, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of you guys. Uh, so I'm kind of like sweaty palms nervous. So I, I wrote this question down, so I hope you'll, you'll forgive me. Uh, so, you talked about like thinking about like that element of curiosity and surprise, um, and uh, you know that's important to me, and that's what makes it you know such a fun show to listen to as a listener. Um, you know, you talked about um, how you know f uh, learning that guns make the NRA stronger, or that like you know you buy an assault rifle because it's fun. Um, I am you know a liberal Jew who grew up in New York City, right? So for me, that stuff is surprising. Uh, but I think uh, it gets to kind of the question of like diversity in the newsroom. Uh, you know, if you had a bunch of Southerners, you know, sun or gun, you know, people, they might not be surprised from that, right? And you know, it also gets to questions of like audience and who you're talking to. So I guess my question is, how does that factor into how you decide what stories you tell and how you tell them? Good question. I mean, I think we know we are a audio team and a show based on 8th Avenue and 41st Street. We are the New York Times. We have a, a pretty good understanding of who the New York Times readership is. But we began the show with this idea that we wanted to 
have a listenership that was much broader than that. And that, that is something we've achieved. A lot of our listeners are not New York Times subscribers. A lot of them do not live in major cities, and they don't even live in the United States. And I, th I think we don't view any of our story selection through an ideological prism that's at least conscious. We are constantly asking ourselves, especially on big news days, like after a mass shooting, what is the essential narrative question that we can answer on this day that, that no one else is even at necessarily asking? And we can't help approaching it through the people we are and our curiosities, but I think what you'll see through those questions on that John Markell script and how we interview everybody on the show that we work really hard and deliberately to bleach these interviews of any of our, what may be our conscious assumptions or our unconscious assumptions or any of the politics that we might bring to these interviews. That's been really deliberate. It's something that Lisa insisted on from the beginning of the show, and I think that's why the show feels distinctly apolitical and a little bit different from your assumptions of what you might hear from an organization like the New York Times, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say, I, I, obviously we can't, we can't help but be who we are in terms of what our questions are and what our curiosities are. Um, but I do think that by letting, by finding people who, regardless of your politics, feel like the kind of the right person for whatever reason to hear from in that moment, the kind of the characters that matter in these moments, and then just letting, letting a, a, a real conversation happen that to the extent that it's possible, the right stories come out. I have a million follow-up questions, but obviously <laughs> we won't do that now. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I was wondering if you've seen the relationship between your audio product and then the print or the text product evolve in interesting ways, whether if you're doing a really richly reported second-day story that's full of its own kind of revelations and surprises, whether that then drives story ideas for your um, colleagues on the print side, um, where they're maybe doing like the fifth or the sixth day story or the magazine story based on something they heard yeah. um, that was new information in a, in a show? It actually is beginning to happen more and more in a way that I am, have found just shocking and, and exciting. Um, I think one of the things is that a lot of reporters, it's not actually their job to ask the why questions, the what does it mean questions, in a way that is totally appropriate. If you're an investigative reporter covering um, the latest with the Comey memos, it's not, you're, you're basically, I mean, we have pushed investigative reporters into, into places they're not totally comfortable with by saying like, but what is this all building toward? What are we, like, are, what are we looking for here? What is collusion? What is we collusion and why does it matter? And, and, and they basically, you know, they, they say stuff that's totally legitimate and right, which is, it's not our job to know what we're building toward. It's our job to find out what's going on. It's our job to find the information, make that available to people, let the facts and information come out, and then somebody else is gonna figure out, it's not our job to tell you what that is or where it's going or what like best or worst case scenario, depending on your politics, that leads to. That's not the job of the reporter. But it is, we see it as our job to say like, but if we're gonna keep doing this drip, 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 we need to put it into the context of like, what are we potentially building toward in the sense of like, what, what does it imply to cover this over and over and over again? And so those are the kinds of ways in which we often push reporters into the types of questions that I think are sort of fundamental to a reader or a listener, but that aren't always being answered in print in these incremental, in the incremental news coverage. And I think those sorts of ideas have often led to stories being written. So like in the case of like, why were we all talking about collusion? And then when we got to collusion, nothing seemed to happen. 
Um, like that, that was something right. that we sat in a room, like everyone was like, does anyone get this? And we called two reporters and they were both like, yeah, I don't know, let me find out. And I found that shocking, but the more I thought about it, it's not shocking because it's not really, that's not what they're up to in right. these investigations. And yeah. so it's been really interesting. We, we just got a note from a colleague of ours who like, if you would have told me a year ago that this man would send us this email, I would have like fainted. Um, but he, he basically said, you know, I, I just, I, I'm, you're asking us questions that we're that we struggle to answer, and that's great. And and I think you know that's if we're doing anything, I hope that's what we're doing. And it's starting to it is starting to sometimes those questions lead to to, to stories in print or to an idea going into a, a story that that may not have otherwise been there. I, I was actually going to ask a similar question about how your relationship with reporters have changed has changed. Um, and that, like, I was curious if reporters have become more audio-minded, if before they're even pursuing yes. a story, they're like, okay, here's how I can get this tape for you all, and I'm curious how much of, how much time it takes. Uh, here's the, I, oh, go ahead. I was gonna, the, the prime example of that is, is Mike Schmidt and our colleague Emily Steele. They came to us about a week and a half ago and said, proactively, out of nowhere, we are going to do a showdown interview with Bill O'Reilly about... Um, the, all the claims of sexual assault and what you did and what you didn't do and and we said oh okay um, <laughs> would you come over here to the fourth floor this is a zoom this is how you use it hit record make sure it's red oh, and and Emily brought the recorder and of course they're even better than we thought they could be as non-audio people they also had their iPhone recorders running so when they hit the off button on the zoom and Bill O'Reilly decided to basically explode at them, they had a different set of recorders running. And then they immediately came back and handed us the Zoom and the chip. And like, I mean, we couldn't have dreamed eight months ago that our colleagues would be so eager to collect audio. And they're now, they're now proactively doing it. And the biggest change is that when we started the show, we had to you know, essentially beg and plead for people to come on. Uh, and now people volunteer themselves, people get upset when they're not on, uh, and that's a wonderful, wonderful development. People want their stories and their reporting honored in, in a beautifully crafted way. Yeah, if this is useful for process, um, uh, the, the iPhone recordings tend to be like, okay, you're going out, you, you're doing a story that you're probably gonna end up in some, that will appear on the show in some form, you know, why don't you just record whatever interviews you're doing so that so that you mm -hmm. have them, and, and we may or may not have use for them. And then there's this calibration of like, when does an interview want to be? When do you want to take a source, a character in the story, and have like, and be sure that that's like that's at the heart of the story. And in those cases, Michael usually does the interview. So like in the case of the Dave Phillips conversation, he was in Portland. He could have interviewed all those people and recorded the conversations, or we could have sent a tape sync with him to interview those to, to interview those people. But they felt like central to they felt so central to the narrative, not like additional color, but like the narrative itself that Michael did the conversations. But when it feels like color or flavor or sense of place or um, or that there's something deeply compelling for whatever reason about hearing the reporter in conversation with the with the character instead of Michael in conversation with the character, um, you know, like maybe it's it's going to be really compelling that this person is in this person's office in this state, um, you know, that that they've traveled to this place and they're there with them in this place. Then then we ask people to use their iPhones and record when possible. But um, but so that's a kind of a calibration, a judgment we're making based on what that extra voice is going to accomplish. And the fact that the journalists are letting us talk to their sources is a very novel concept. I mean, if, as a print reporter who has sources, I, why would I have ever given up my sources to you, random audio host of New York Times podcast? But that's another sign that I think that the, the show has been kind of baked into the culture. Okay, we'll go next. 
It was interesting to me what you said about how uh, your conception of how an interview could or should be structured changed when you started working on audio stories. So I'm wondering whether any of the lessons that you have learned about um, talking with people, particularly who might be coming from different viewpoints or very different life experiences, has bled into uh, work that print reporters are doing in their own stories for print. I don't have an answer. That I think the people who listen to the show, the, the reporters who come on a lot, like the Matapuzos of the world who cover the FBI and the Justice Department, Jeff Sessions, um, I think he's starting to, th he would tell you he's thinking about narrative more and storytelling more since coming on The Daily. But there's still inevitably a different impulse and incentive when you need to just straight report the news that someone's eyes are going to glance over. So I, maybe, Lisa, if you would disagree with me, but I, I think... They, these are going to remain distinct forms that slowly begin to, to bleed into each other, where narrative becomes richer and hopefully news becomes more explanatory. But these guys are never going to ask the essential question at the bottom of a, I think, of a print story. Because I just, I don't actually think that would necessarily be logical. Um, we're we're going to be really fast because I know we've got to run. Yeah, um, one, one of the most surprising things for me to hear on your show is uh, when you ask reporters how they feel about a story that they've uh, worked on, which like, um, is often really refreshing. A moment in particular is uh, talking about the like, new surge thing in Afghanistan. You talk to a reporter who's been covering that for 10 years and asked, like, you know, how, how does it feel for you to see this happen again? And he just sort of expressed pure frustration and exasperation and kind of hopelessness with it. Um, how hard was that to get New York Times reporters comfortably talking about that? Do you have any pushback within the within the editorial organization to be talking about reporters' feelings about well, that's a, that's a classic Lisa Tobin, uh, you know, to ask a reporter, and she'll, she'll write it into the Google Doc we use, and I'll say, oh, he's not going to want to answer that. He's, not, he's never going to answer that. And once in a while, a reporter will say, I'm not going to answer that. And in the case of Matt Rosenberg, who spent years in Afghanistan as a reporter, he said, I'm really, I've been waiting for someone to ask me that question. I have really strong feelings. I know that country. I know these soldiers. I've watched people die for this cause. Um, and so it depends on the reporter. And we don't want to overdo it is the key thing. I mean, I think it, we have to be pretty sparing in that kind of approach. Yeah, and it, we would never ask them, and they would never do it, to, to say something that compromises the the objectivity of the reporting. I think the, the, the way in which we try to use that is like, Matt has seen over, and the, the reporter who you're talking about, Matt Rosenberg, has seen over and over this same, this same cycle. And he's basically saying, as a reporter That's at this point, I've seen this again, I'm able to say like, don't think so. And, and that's not really, yes, that is his opinion, but it's a really informed journalistic opinion. And so it's not like this guy saying like, you know, picking a side, he's not picking a side. He's, he's saying like, my very informed opinion on this is that this is the same thing we've seen before and it has never worked. And so I think we're just very, we're very mindful of when we're doing that. And, and we've, we've, we cut it if we do it in a way that feels like that's, that's just, we're, we're crossing some journalistic line here. Um, we, we, won't, we won't include it. I mean, maybe again, we've gotten that wrong in a few cases, but that's what we're striving for. Barbara. Thanks. Um, my question is really a process question. I'm particularly interested if you could speak to the, um, the editing, the story editing process. And if we could maybe go back to the TikTok. I think where we left off, it was 11.30 or 12. Uh, in the morning or noon, but this thing drops at an ungodly early hour. So what is happening? Does somebody listen to a final cut at four o'clock in the morning? How is Occasionally. The, how does the editorial, um, editorial 
quality and editing process actually work with your time frame? Mm -hmm. So we've gotten more and more efficient um, in, in as we've gone. Um, it is still long hours, but um, essentially a producer, you know, like I said, these, these two way, these conversations are, are, are set up in such a way that ideally you're just bringing the thing down. Um, so the structure's all there. Of, of course, there are instances where the structure gets moved around after the fact, but the goal is that you've basically got a structure in place that makes things obviously so much easier. Um, we've become, it's, an it's these, by far the most collaborative team I've ever worked on because it has to be by necessity of, of the process. And so one thing that we've gotten much, much better about is dividing and conquering after a, a big interview like that. If you know that the NRA conversation is going to be the bulk of the show, you can actually, there are, way, there are instances where we just divide the interview in half and two producers cut it because the thing is coherently linear. So why not have one producer cut the first half down and the second producer cut the second half down, bring the two together and make sure it's working. But it probably is, and they're communicating with one another, of course, but it probably is because it's linear. And so, um, and so you, we can actually successfully do that. And then the th maybe somebody else or one of the producers is focused on like, we call it tape dreams. Like what are your dreams of, of outside tape for this? And somebody's off collecting like, I'm gonna go get the newsreel from the night of the crime. I'm gonna go get the newsreel from other instances of, of hate crimes in Portland in the last year. Um, and, then, and then the sort of, the whole thing comes together and sometimes it feels like a miracle. Um, but, but it's amazing how fast you can work when you've got that structure already in place and you don't have to find your structure. And so I think that's kind of, that's sort of the heart of the thing that it feels like we stumbled on by accident in trying to figure out how to do this at this, at this organization. Um, and then the editing, um, we'll edit as soon as something's ready to listen to. And again, with this collaborative nature, like I'll often just say, um, just give it to me and I will, and, and like a producer, all, every producer has had to stop being precious and basically say like, this is probably uh, slightly structured incorrectly. It's a mess. Um, I haven't fixed all the levels. I haven't like smoothed like half the cuts I've made and um, it's probably 12 minutes too long. But as soon as another set of ears goes on it, it's like, yeah, it is 12 minutes too long, and here's where it's 12 minutes too long, and like, okay, like suck it in, and and we can, I say this like I I know how much time I've wasted myself in in trying to get those last 12 minutes out of a story that I'm attached to. People have learned to just hand it over to an editor and say like, I know it's too long, tell me where it is, and there's just an incredible amount of trust and collaboration on the team at this point. And the final edit. Um, um, you know, basically by the end of the night, it's down to the person who um, we call it is owning the session for the night. So the producer who has the Pro Tools session and is cl and making the final changes, that producer and an editor who is doing the final listen and giving the final set of edits, and then um, we put it to bed. So so they are often semi late nights, but by but at this point, it's down to a like unless something really nuts has happened, it's down to two people are having a late night now. The person who owns the session at the end of the night making the final edits and the editor. Um, so that's, that's, that's how we're, we're sort of like a collaborative team doing whatever needs to be done to make the thing that day. And whoever's not on that day's show is working on further ahead, sort of Dave Phillips-like narratives, working on stuff that we need more time to develop. And then, um, and then two people tend to have a late night, but that rotates. And then I get the call at one o'clock when Lisa realizes we need a retrack because of the great editing she does. And I have to keep my, I used to never be someone who kept my phone on, it was on silent. I was always on silent when I went to bed. And now I get the phone call at 12.30 or 1 a.m. that says, oh, we just need a retrack right here. So I take my little machine and I go into the walk-in closet and I put a blanket over my head and then we finish. <laughs> there you go. 
Okay, I, I, we basically have massively overrun our time, but since you've been so patient, why don't we be super fast question? I'll try to be fast. It's a question also about time constraints, but between the print side and, and your side, yeah. something like that Mike Schmidt interview, yeah. where it sounds like you're talking to him as he's in the middle of his reporting. Yes. He's like, well, I talked to this guy who told me Comey and Trump had this dinner, but I mean, I know the New York Times has very high standards of accuracy yeah. and veracity, but it's, has an editor sort of, has he reported that out? Has somebody yeah. said like, that's, is that just hearsay? How no, I mean, no, we, we, we wait. Putting it out there. That actually wasn't in the middle of the reporting process. So his story was already published. out yeah. and published. We just unfolded it in a way that he's describing the process of the reporting. So we wouldn't ask anyone to say stuff like that in the midst if of the reporting. Gone. Yeah, right. we, we don't do that. And, and when we're timed along with a reporter, we will keep checking in with them. Is everything still right? And, and that's sometimes when we get stuck doing an interview at 9 p.m. at night. Yeah, we'll often say, like, we can't record this till 4 because the story's way too, like, in process right now. Fair question. Thanks. You just listened to all of the second presentation of Bringing Together Narrative and News. But before we finish up, we also want to share the Q&A from the previous day's session. Here you go. Hello. Hello. Uh, thank you guys so much for that presentation. It was really great. Um, I wanted to know, you guys talked a lot about like revealing information mm -hmm. and withholding information. And I found myself having a lot of discussions with people about like when you give too much context that you lose the tension, mm -hmm. but also like when you withhold so, like so much that your listeners don't know where they are, what they're doing mm -hmm. there. And so I just wanted to know, like, how do you guys strike the balance between those kind of two pillars on opposite ends? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think we've gotten better at it. I hope we've gotten better at it. I think we may have, we may have occasionally in the early days of the show been so eager to experiment that we may have erred on the side of, of occasionally not giving people all of the information they needed. Um, so I think it, it is something that I think we think about and grapple with. I think we're often, what we do when we write scripts like that, or questions, um, I know the word scripting is confusing, when we write questions is we talk about what the answers are likely to be and what information you will have as a result of that. So it's not just like what are the questions and what are we hoping happens, it's really thinking through what can we assume will become clear in response to that question and is do you have enough information? So we're, it's just as important to think about what kind of information will be conveyed in response and therefore, and really make sense of like, is that enough? Is, is that what they need at that moment? And so the, the questions are formulated with a, with a mind for, yes, we want to insert tension and suspense in all the right places, and we want to unfold a story, but we also are very mindful of what's gonna, what do you need to know in order to understand where you are in that moment? So it's kind of a mushy answer, but we are thinking about it when we're, when we're writing the questions. And then if someone gives you an answer, though, that just provokes more questions, like you're like, oh gosh, our, re our listeners are gonna just wanna know what all of that means, are you like, we probably won't put that in there? Well, it depends also, sometimes, I mean, let's say I'm interviewing you, I'd say, I, might, I might just say, you know, that was a great answer. What if we try it again where? There's maybe some stage management that goes on. Maybe you don't give, you know, maybe you're not, introducing a bunch of new concepts that are really going to throw this narrative off. It's just, it's not a natural thing for, yeah. I mean, if not with John Markell, I wouldn't ask a, I wouldn't ask a gun shop owner to, to retake an answer. With a colleague trying to establish a narrative like what we did with the PTSD Iraqi soldier, Iraqi restaurant owner, we would make sure that we were sometimes trying multiple takes of something to make sure we were 
you know, that there's a coherence to it. Yeah, so I would say in the case of, of, of a, a real person who we, like, like Michael said, we would never ask to do something um, unnatural, we would just, so we have this, just to give you a little more insight, because we didn't, there was no such thing as a live document in this, you're not seeing how the document updates as, as these conversations are actually unfolding, but a producer is in the Google Doc with Michael, and he's got the questions that we set out with, but then as the conversation's happening, Michael is pivoting in response to what actually happens, and the producer is adding questions and saying like, oh, whoa, 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 um, that, you know, either that's very interesting, we've just taken a turn and we need to follow that, so let's write four more questions and follow that thread, or um, we need to stop, figure out what, you know, that just went off the rails, let's, uh, let's start over and get back to what we need. So the, the document actually is very living in, in, in the process of the conversations and a producer is really mindful of like, are we on the track we thought we were gonna go on? If we're not, should we be back on it or should we follow this, um, this, this sort of surprising development? And so a lot of that, you know, if it's a reporter, we're more prone to just say, hold on, so the listener's really gonna need to know this and you've just raced ahead 10 years and we need to go back to where we were into that scene. Um, with, a, with a real person, we're just likely to just keep writing questions till we get um, you know, something that's gonna make sense to people. This is not a shout out to Google or Google Docs, but they're essential to the daily uh, because again, my understanding not coming from audio is that there's a, like a talk back function for people who, especially in public radio, where a producer might say something into your ear. And I would find that really, I think people would try it once, or it, it's, it would be very disorienting to me. So the Google document solution is that I'll look at a screen and Lisa or somebody else, like things will change and I'm very comfortable with that mode of an interview evolving, but I do not want a voice in my ear saying something to me. Because I'm, I'm trying very actively to listen. I can't understand how any of you, if this is what you do, could possibly tolerate someone talking in your ear in the middle of an interview? Um, I have a question, I guess it's about buy-in, and um, in terms of how you get management, um, the gatekeepers to the reporters and the reporters themselves to kind of play ball with this, because I've been in a position where I've had to get reporters to do extra stuff, and now there's you know, Twitter and there's web deadlines and there's everything else and, you know, sometimes I think that's a big challenge even though I know that you said that, you know, the easiest interview to get is with the guy who works at the New York Times. Yeah. Um, you know, you're also bringing a new format um, to print and so there just seems like there's a lot of, I'm just wondering what the challenges of It's a great, great question. Do you want to start? Yeah, sure. I would say that the biggest surprise, um, well, I actually ha have a lot of thoughts on this because I am the one who came in from the outside expecting it to be really hard. Um, so coming in from audio, I thought like the biggest challenge here is going to be we're going to be marginalized, right? We're like this startup medium inside of this organization and like no one's going to have time for us and why should they? Um, and I think two things. One is Michael, which is, you know, we we hired a team of all audio producers. So everybody on the audio team is coming from the world of audio and is thinking about how to tell stories in audio. But Michael, as the host, is everybody's trusted colleague who's been at the Times for 10 years, who knows all of the people we want to talk to. He books his own guests because all that means is like slacking them or sending them a G-chat and being like, hey, Maggie, you want to come to the you know, uh, 16th floor for 20 minutes at 2 o'clock? And he, yes. Um, so a lot of it is, is Michael, and then that you know, that was how, that was sort of how we got started. I would say Michael was critical to people being willing to play along. And also I think it, in ways that we both knew and didn't know at the time how powerful it would be, it meant that they were willing to have conversations like that with him, right? Because I think most of us, like, if we tried to script something like that, a set of questions like that, um, 
might get some resistance from people who are like, what are you doing? That is not my story. That's not what I wrote. But um, so, and, and I will admit that that's a particularity of being inside the institution that I think is a benefit, which is people are very comfortable with that. And so that's huge. The second thing I'll say is, and this one's more applicable, is that the payoff for reporters was immediate. Um, I think the New York Times is in print the kind of like the dominant brand. So I had read Michael's work for 10 years and I didn't know who he was because the New York Times is like, I, was, I read a story in the New York Times, not I read a story by Michael Barbar in the New York Times. And there's a few exceptions to that, but not many. Um, in audio, you can't help but meet these people as people. And so Mike Schmidt became like a legend when he called in from Kinko's to talk about the memos. And um, like truly, like it was like, it, it, it was one of those moments early on in the show where we were like, oh wow. And for him too, right? He's like, he, he became like an internet celebrity because he called in from Kinko's to report on this like crazy breaking news he got. But what's most interesting is he's calling from a phone at Kinko's. So they, they immediately, the reporters are just like dying to be on the show, both because they get all this feedback and they hear from people. They're like, I heard from somebody that I haven't spoken to since third grade. And I, they never write to me when I get a story in the paper. Um, so that's amazing. And that's like, you can't replicate that. And then I think they get excited about the, like, the medium, right? Because um, a lot of these, what, what we didn't really talk about is that a lot of these real people are just sources that other people at the Times have found that they hand over to us, which I, he gave us the soldier's mother. He gave us the platoon mate. Like, Dave had already done all of that work, and he just said, like, here, I trust you to do this interview well. And Michael spoke to them. Dave didn't speak, just spoke to them. And that's another thing I've been surprised by. And again, I don't want to get too particular about the times, but is, is the sort of generosity around these sources is Dave's going to look awesome if he hands over those three sources to us, right? Because his story sounds amazing because he did that. Um, there's just been a recognition of that that happened really quickly. And people are really excited about the fact that their story has this whole other life that's told in this totally different form that bears almost no resemblance to what, to what he published in print. So it, it's just been like, it's sort of been this cycle of, of positive feedback that, that has just worked. Yeah. But it's also been an amazing surprise. Um, usually bigger shops and people who do the type of narrative work that you do take a lot more time uh, obviously with the story. Um, and I'm curious if there's a place uh, where you, uh, in the past that you spent a lot more time that you found, like where have you cut down the most um, in terms of um, the work that would usually go into this type of story? Where have you found the most efficiency in mm. gains? Well, while you think about that, the most efficient thing that we do is we start with a finished story that we are along for the ride with. I mean, the key thing about being inside the New York Times is that we go to all the same meetings as the reporters. We are watching their story from assignment to editing to publication. We know when it's coming out. So we can be timed with them, and we're not out there calling random people trying to find great stories. That one of the major efficiencies of our of the audio operation, the daily, is that we start with what we already know to be a wonderful, vetted, reported story as a jumping off point. That's a pretty marvelous efficiency to have. Yeah, but built that's into not super system. useful to everyone else. Yes, that's a unique situation. Um, I would say that on the team, the efficiencies have been what kind of tape are we going to want, and can we find it in advance, right? Because that's like. Nobody wants to be finding that tape at the end of the night and adding it in after the fact. And so that's the kind of thing that we now divide up. Like, um, 
people say like, what are your tape dreams to each other? <laughs> like, like I, you know, somebody, Annie's producing it and somebody, another producer on the team says, what are your tape dreams? And she's like, oh, well, I really want news footage from, um, from that night and I really want instances um, of, of other hate crimes in Portland in the last year. And somebody else goes and finds those. And in some cases, you don't get exactly what you need up front, but most of the time you have pretty much everything you want. Um, so, because you can, you kind of know your beats, and so somebody else can be pulling the tape. I think that's become a real efficiency. Another efficiency is that as the team has become really, has started to trust each other a lot, it's like the most collaborative team that I've ever been a part of. Everybody is, it's like an organism at this point, and so, because it has to be to get this thing done. So there's like, there's like kind of no ego about the whole thing. It's like, your work's gonna suck because you're making it way too fast, and you just gotta trust everybody else, and like, hand it off to an editor, it's not done. She's gonna cut 12 minutes out of it, it's gonna be fine. Um, you know, if it's, if it's structured incorrectly, it's gonna get fixed. Let somebody else right. hear it and fix it. So there's a lot of like, there's a, there's a collaborative nature to the whole thing. And so in that way, whenever people can split edits, they are splitting edits, which I think is really unusual. So the NRA story, three people produced that. So it got split like into thirds. Um, two people cut, because it was a long conversation and it had to be turned around a day. One person cut the first half, the other person cut the second half, and then they were handing it to a third producer who was, who was adding the tape. And so not one person was responsible for that. And you can do that if everybody knows where you're headed and if the conversation is not like a total mess that needs to be restructured. If it's like, if it's linear and it's just about like get the best stuff out of the first half and then get the best stuff out of the second half, we actually will divide the interviews in half and co-edit them and then bring them together and go like, did that work? And in the case of like the NRA, it worked amazingly and one producer could never have done that on that turnaround. But that goes back to the questions. If you don't have a really carefully prepared set of questions that go in that interview, then everything Lisa just described falls apart. Right, that would never have worked if we didn't, if, if the conversation hadn't followed the arc that we set out for it to follow. Right. Hi. Hi. I'm wondering how you navigate talking to people who either you really don't see eye to eye with or you feel like are politically motivated in their responses or just like legitimately disingenuous. And there's two uh, daily episodes that come to mind. One is when you talk to the coal miner and you're kind of like nudging him on you know, the relationship between mining coal and pollution and it's just not going anywhere. And finally he just asks you whether you've ever been to a coal mine and you say no and then you have this very beautiful human moment, but you kind of just like stopped nudging. And then the other, the other episode that comes to mind is, is uh, just recently when you were talking to Bill O'Reilly and, uh, or the, the New York Times reporters, and, 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 and I just, and they don't, and he's, he's talking as if he's the victim of some smear campaign. And I was, and they don't respond to him to that. And I'm just sitting there thinking like, ah, like how can you not, like had I been there, I don't think I would have been able to not say, Bill, who are you performing for right now? Are you performing for us? Are you performing for your lawyers? Are you performing for yourself? Um, and I feel like maybe because they see themselves as journalists, they feel like it's not their place to do that. I, I don't, and, and so, I, I mean, I, yeah. in my own experience, I feel like it, 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 ultimately the answer is it depends. But I am curious to hear you talk about how you navigate that and especially within this context of the, the, the post-truth sure. moment that we're in. Well, it probably won't shock you if you've listened to the show that we we deliberately seek out voices that we think are in some way kind of underrepresented in the medium and in and maybe even in times coverage and we want to have meaty meaningful you know 
surprising conversations with those people. So when you set when we set out with that mission, that that guides our reactions and the way that we are going to the way I'm going to be conveyed in that conversation and how we're going to edit it. I mean, we're we're seeking in many ways out that person. So um, I think sometimes people expect a reaction from me or from from the daily that I'm that that I don't know how to I don't know how to process because it's I'm I've been a print journalist with a certain level of objectivity baked into my DNA for so long that it would, it would never occur to me to have an, an especially political reaction or a deep, you know, like in reflexive reaction to something that, that some of our listeners might have. And, and we see it as our job in those kinds of interviews, as you could see from the John Markell gunshot owner interview, just of letting that person be human, let them be heard, fact check them, of course, if they're saying something that's utterly, you know, wrong. Well, that might be part of what you're getting at, right? Is one of the, the, the coal mining episode was a very uh, divisive one. Some people said it was like one of the most powerful interviews they'd heard because you let somebody who you don't hear from just talk and that there was like an, an, an implicit sort of dramatic irony to that conversation, which is you've just heard this reporter at the Times mm -hmm. who covers the EPA talking about, you know, just how completely damaging to the environment these coal mines are and, um, and, talk about the fact that like this is a dying industry and it's on its way out and then you talk to a coal miner and he's like fiercely holding on to this thing and he's fiercely like he, he's 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 dying of black lung that becomes apparent in the conversation but he is basically refusing to recognize that this is a dying industry and that you know what 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 mo many people heard listening was like why is he denying the truth and why aren't you saying it to him why aren't you saying like your facts are wrong and this is just like inherently destructive and we thought because we know that doesn't the listener know that like doesn't hasn't the, haven't we just provided the facts to the listener and shouldn't we just let this man like sort of his humanity come through and that, that was a totally divisive episode and I'm willing to like I'm, I'm definitely open to the fact that we erred too far on the side of not pushing back on him but we thought about it and we thought like we've given you the facts we can assume some basic human knowledge about where we're at mm -hmm. with our understanding of science let's let this guy tell his story and let's let that be uh, like powerful on its own. A big part of The Daily is our faith in the listener. So much of what we do is spare. We don't over-introduce things. We don't, I mean, our, our storytelling is deeply explanatory, but the amount of talking that I do in the show, whether it's in the script or in the questioning, we know how smart our listeners are. And so we didn't feel we needed to, to like interrupt this coal miner with a crossfire style you know, kind of science lesson. It was it was all there in the first segment. Um, yeah, and we believe that a certain kind of empathetic generosity is essential to what makes the show special. As for the Bill O'Reilly thing, I would have loved to hear them say that to him in the room, but I don't know. I, I mean, I think they did a great job. And, and actually, fi final note is, you may have noticed that we have, there's another form we've developed that kind of addresses public figures and how they talk in interviews, which is we layer analysis on top of that. So Michael spoke to... Mike Schmidt again and Emily Steele who, who were in the room with Bill O'Reilly about the interview after the interview and we ran the interview and then we layered on top of it the analysis of that conversation and so it's that the fact checking is happening after the fact in, in, in some form the context of what you're hearing is happening after the fact and that's how we've addressed the fact that like of course when you talk to a public figure 
um, they're gonna they're not gonna be f totally forthcoming with you. Um, so that's kind of like another way that we've played with with the form. If since you were standing there, could you, if you could if you could do twenty second question, we'll do twenty second answer. Okay, that's good because this is a very small question, but I'm really curious. Over the last couple of months, you guys have started to use the music from the conversation a lot. <laughs> do, 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 do. It was in that clip. Uh, that music's been used in This American Life for years. I actually thought it was written by This American Life until I saw the Scorsese film, The Conversation. Has it come up between you guys? I always thought of it as This American Life music. Seemed very signature to that show. I'm the wrong person for that conversation. Uh, I mean, for that question. Um, I will find out. 